Tonight's message will be the seventh in the series of messages on the subject of infant salvation. The title of the message is The Character of God Theory, or as expressed in another way, The Love of God Theory. In our study thus far, in the previous messages, we have completed the examination of two theories of infant salvation, both based upon the character of the infant at the time of its death. They were the sinless theory and the incapable theory. The sinless theory held that if an infant died in infancy, it would be saved because it was born with a sinless nature and thus could not be worthy of judgment or condemnation. We found that to be false in light of the Scripture, that contrary to that assertion, the Scriptures do clearly state that infants are born with sinful nature, even from the womb itself. The second theory we examined was known as the incapable theory. This theory reasons that since the infant died before its probationary period could start, then it was incapable or is incapable of committing any sinful act which would be worthy of the judgment of God. This theory, while not absolutely denying the sinlessness of the infant, holds that the infant's probation did not begin in Adam, nor at its birth, but at a moral age of accountability when the infant was mature enough to assume its probationary duties. Therefore, if the infant died before that probationary period started, then it could not be condemned because it did not have the chance to act. Now, we've examined both of those theories and found them to not only be inadequate to the task of answering what is the destiny of a dead infant, but also these theories represent a major departure from the Scripture revelation of sin and grace. These theories do not base their understanding of their answer upon the Bible and the Bible alone, and thus they depart from the biblical teaching on the nature of sin and the remedy for sin, that being grace. We will now move on to the examination of the view of infant salvation, which is known as the character of God theory, or as we have stated, can also be called the love of God theory. Now what is the basic premise of this theory? How does it begin? How does it work itself out in explaining the salvation of a dead infant. This view, unlike the two previous ones, bases its case by reasoning from a basic presupposition which involves a view not of the infant but of the character of God. This view holds that the text in 1 John 4 8 gives us an all-inclusive and all-exclusive definition of the nature of God. Would you please turn to 1 John chapter 4 and verse 8. The little epistle of 1 John. Chapter 4 and verse 8. The scripture states here, He that loveth not, knoweth not God, for God is love. Now that text is taken, and it is stated that that is an absolute definition of the nature of God. That all that there is to know about God is inclusive and exclusive found in that one explanation, that God is love. This view holds that the very essence of God's nature and the summation of all of his attributes is that of an infinite and eternal being of love. It is then reason that since love is an impulse to bless, that God's very nature is such that he is incapable of inflicting eternal suffering upon any creature which he has made. 
since there is nothing in his character which would then allow him to punish anyone, all mankind, including infants, will then be ultimately saved. Now you see what can be done with one passage of Scripture. If that was the only declaration of the character of God as given in his revelation, perhaps one could come up with such an understanding. But this understanding is not governed by the Bible itself. This understanding is a rationalistic approach. It only uses the text of Scripture to justify its premise. I'd like to expand this view a little bit from those who have originated it and those who hold to it to show that what they are actually saying when they speak of the term that God is love. One man, in writing upon this understanding of God, states this. The scriptural doctrine is that God is love, and the Son must be the same love in one mode of its existence. The love that God is is not merely the affection of one person for another as of individuals, but the holy, universal, infinite love which forever seeks to impart itself and which causes all persons to have existence. The Son of God is that love as it goes forth to impart itself to others conceived in the image of God. The perfect love that God is, just because it is perfect, can never keep to itself, but must eternal, be eternally giving itself and going forth creating now what that individual is in essence saying is this, that God is love and that he must forever be loving and in order to have an object of love, he must forever go on creating. Thus everything which he has created, he has done so because it was of necessity for him to do so since his very being is love, and love is an impulse to bless and create others. Now, another writer of this same understanding states this. He says, My full view is that the final universe is to manifest, in some measure, the entirety of God's life. To do so much, the final universe must express not merely the fact of God's moral love, but additionally the fact that this divine love is a satisfied moral love. Now what this man is saying is this. When the final universe is completed and comes to its consummation, it will be but an expression of the very essence of God, which is love. But that love must be a satisfied love. Therefore, the final universe cannot have any dimension of wrath or punishment because God could never be satisfied and happy if any of his creation were left in a state of unhappiness. So therefore, ultimately, all mankind and all creatures must come to a full appreciation of happiness in God in order for God to be satisfied in the final outcome. Now, moving on. Another writer, he's downplaying the view which was common in his day, of which that which I hold to, says this, now listen carefully, see how he arrives at his own understanding and where his understanding takes him. If we accept the idea that man is a depraved being by inheritance, that an angry God must be appeased, and the only begotten Son had to be sacrificed to set things right, then the doctrine of the atonement in its old form is logical. And the followers of this type of Christianity are justified in their life and death struggle for what they believe to be the fundamental principle. Of course, if God is love, 
then there are no lost souls in the true sense of the word. Although many may be almost instantly removed from the knowledge of the truth which sets men free. And since God is love, he is not the angry Yahweh of a former generation who demands a sacrifice. The idea of offering up a human being in this way belongs to savage times, when men thought they must render tribute to the gods to win their favor. It shows enormous disrespect to the God of love to think that he demands a propitiatory offering. It would be difficult to give any of Jesus' sayings any sense or any meaning. Furthermore, a God of love is no respecter of persons. Have you ever heard that term before? He is the Father of all the people. There are no elect or condemned. It is not a question of faith, but of the way open before those who choose to walk in it. Now what does that man say? He's simply saying, now the old view that used to be held years ago, before we evolved into this new concept, was that if man was depraved by nature, and God was angry at him, and had to be appeased by a sacrifice, then the truth of the atonement fits in, logically, with that plan of redemption. But, if God is love, then all of that makes no sense whatsoever. If God is love, he cannot be an angry God. If God is love, then he does not have to be satisfied by a human sacrifice. That belongs back to the barbaric ages in tribal beings offering up sacrifices to their God. And he says it is an offense against the very God of love to talk of offering up the sacrifice of his own son to satisfy his wrath against sin. So I hope you are with me beginning to see that this idea of the concept of a God which is love and love only will at once begin to take the, make the parting of the way when we try to stay within the framework of the Bible itself. Now another writer of this view says this, God is love, but love is social. Love can as little live in solitude by itself as a man can breathe in a vacuum. In order to its being, there must be a subject bestowing love and an object rejoicing in the bestowment. Absolute and simple loneliness of being would be a state of complete lovelessness. The Godhead means that as the fatherhood and the sonship have been eternal, so also has the love. It follows, therefore, that creation in its most real and radical sense is the production of a being capable of being loved and therefore of loving. Now, what does that man say? Simply this, that God is such a God of love. But in order for love to exist, it must have an object. And if God had not created the object for him to love, he would have been a lonely God. And beloved, I want to affirm this evening that God was perfectly content and satisfied in all of his being before he ever created one object. God did not have to have the creation in order to complete his being. He is perfectly content and complete in all of his being. But yet this view says that absolute and simple loneliness would be a state of complete loveliness. Therefore, if God didn't have something to love, he would have existed throughout all eternity as a complete lonely and dissatisfied being. Love is held by the advocates of this view to be the central attribute of God. One man says this, 
that God is love is not one side of the truth, but the whole truth about God. Love is not one of the attributes of God, but the sum of them all. Now we've read these statements. We'll read just a couple more, and then we'll begin to analyze them. This writer goes on to say, God is love. When? He replies, always. God is love. Where? He replies, everywhere. Everywhere. Thus, if that be the case, he can go on and make this statement. God will overthrow all evil in all men and beings and will not rest until the Holy Spirit shall say of the new creation, It is finished, for God is love. Now upon each of the creation days described in Genesis, God looked down upon what he had done, and it described, it is given to us this report. He says it was good. It was good. Now this view here of the love of God is this way. That in the end of the universe, God will not rest until all sin in all men and beings, that means the devil himself, has been completely eradicated, and then the Holy Spirit can announce to the universe, it is finished. For now, God is love. So the essence and the summation of all of this teaching is that if God be a God of love, then there can never be any sense of condemnation experienced by any of his creatures, whether they be men or angels. Now, as we examine this and look at some of its implications, we see that the view holds that the essential nature of God's love, the chief end of God's existence is to love, and all of his activities are based on love, then God could not exist at all if he ever ceased to love. He would not be a blessed being, but a miserable being if he could not love. He thus lives to love, and moreover, he lives by loving. Now, is that the truth of the Scripture? Is that the revelation of the character of God that 1 John 4, 8 is talking about when it says that God is love? Before we examine it a little bit further and see some of the fallacies herein, I think that it would be important to look at a little bit of the historical background and the current advocates of those who hold to this view. This view also flows out of the Pelagian view of man, which, as we have seen already, if you begin with a high view of man, you will ultimately have a low view of God. But this view then also originates in the rationalistic view of Scripture. What do you mean by that, Brother Jim? I mean this. This view is not confined by, thus saith the Lord. It can come to the Scripture and subject the Scripture to the rational thinking of the natural mind. Thus, it can say, this scripture is all right, but this scripture here is not satisfactory. This scripture or this view is not confined within the boundaries that all scripture is given by inspiration of God, but it will pick and choose that which is pleasing to the rationalistic thinking of a fallen mind. So it's not bound by the scriptures. Then also, the advocates of this view in current denominational form are those which are known as the Unitarians. The Unitarians are the greatest and most notable advocates of the God is love view. 
But I caution you if this should be the last time that you should ever hear me speak. This view is sweeping through all of evangelical Christianity right now. It is coming into Baptist circles at alarming rates with the idea of the premise that begins with God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Now that's not coming out of the scriptures entirely. That's coming out of this Unitarian concept of God is love. The Unitarians believe that all are going to be saved. The advocates of this new form of evangelism do not yet believe that, but just give time to let the Unitarian influence come upon the scene. And if I live another 15 to 20 years, I sincerely believe that there will be very little evangelical preaching of the gospel as far as calling men to be sinners and calling upon them to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ because it's just a matter of time until, if you think it through, it's the only way that God can be happy is to satisfy his love, then my friend, you cannot have a doctrine of hell and eternal punishment wherein throughout all eternity God will have to live as an unsatisfied being. Just give it time to work itself out, and that's what will come to pass in our own circles of evangelism. Now, we've said that the current denominational advocates are the Unitarians. I will list one popular individual advocate of this view, if you are not already aware of this view. And that is held by none other than the most popular minister of our age, known as Dr. Norman Vincent Peake, in his book, The Power of Positive Thinking. Now, Mr. Peel is not a Unitarian, but he holds essentially the same thing as Unitarianism. I saw him on the Phil Donahue show some two or three months ago. And his statements on there were essentially the same, if not even stronger, than some of the readers which we have given to you this morning or this evening. He said, I believe that God is such a great big God of love that everybody is going to be in heaven one day. So that was stated over the Phil Donahue show. Now, Mr. Norman Vincent Peale would hold to the character of God as being, in essence, love and love only. Now, what are some of the practical implications of holding to this view of God? And before we list them, I want to state this, that our views regarding the character of God are basic and fundamental. Our view of God determines our view of ourselves. Are you aware of that? You won't know who you are until you know truly who God is. Your view of God will determine how you view yourself and the world around you. All disagreements, and I emphasize that word all, all disagreements and controversies in religion have in their roots different opinions regarding the character of God. I'll stand by that. Show me any controversy regarding religion, and I'll take you to the root, and it will involve a differing opinion about what kind of being God is. You wonder why we have all these different churches, all these different religions? How did these all come here? Look underneath the soil where the roots are. Every one of them is here because there's a difference and agreement about what kind of a God. God is. So your view of God will influence your view of yourself and your view of the world around about you. Not only that, but let's get a little more practical and closer to home. Every day we live is either dull or exciting. Every duty we perform is either a drudgery or a delight. Every sacrifice we make is either a hard task or a joyful privilege 
depending upon the view of God which we carry around in our bosoms. Now you reflect upon that for a moment. Every day you live, whether you view that day as dull or exciting, will be depending upon the view of God which you have before your mind at that time. Every task which you undertake, whether you view it as dull and boring, a drudgery, or as whether it's a joyful privilege, will depend upon your view of God which you have at that moment. Thus, if a person's view of God is that of an all-inclusive and all-exclusive being of moral love, they will naturally formulate views on other issues flowing out of this view. I'd like to give you four other views or implications which people now formulate based upon the idea that God is love, and this is taken from these statements which we have given to you by the writers. If you believe that God is love in the sense which it has just been defined, then number one, you will soon believe this, that there will be a universal salvation of all of God's creatures. You can't escape it, and you will soon embrace it. If you believe that God is love, and in order for him to be happy, he can only be happy and satisfied when all of his creatures are happy and satisfied, then you cannot escape but eventually holding to the universal salvation of all of God's creatures. I'd like to read to you something here to reflect upon. If God's happiness is bound up in the happiness of his creatures, then he cannot rest and be satisfied until all his creatures are happy and blessed. Now, how are you going to do that if you're a God, which is love, and yet you have an eternal place called hell? Hmm? If hell is real and it's going to exist, how then could God be happy and blessed when some of his creatures are there? Beloved, you'll have to do away with the doctrine of hell. And this is why you won't find a Unitarian anywhere which will confess and acknowledge the biblical doctrine of the eternal punishment of the wicked. The theory that only a portion of the human race is going to be saved is utterly incompatible and inconsistent with the idea of a loving God. Writers of this view of thinking say that Isaiah and the Old Testament prophets which spoke of some people perishing, and the New Testament apostles speaking about a place of wrath and torment, that they only did so because they didn't have the full evolutionary completed thought of the being of God. And thus they wrote, believing that to be the truth. But now in our enlightened age in which we live in the 20th century, we now have an understanding of God which such that God is such a God of love that he could never allow any of his creatures to perish eternally. Therefore, all of his creatures must ultimately be saved. If you embrace the principle that God is love, universal salvation is the first entrance that will come in your understanding. I'd like to take you to the book of Revelation. And let us see if that is the teaching of Scripture. Revelation chapter 20. Thus do the Scriptures indicate that all beings are going to be happy and blessed in the eternal state. Revelation chapter 20 and verse 11. And I saw a great white throne and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were open. Another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. Verse 15, And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. 
Look over in chapter 21 and verse 8. But the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Revelation chapter 22, verse 11. He that is unjust, let him be unjust still. He which is filthy, let him be filthy still. And he that is righteous, let him be righteous still. And he that is holy, let him be holy still. Beloved, if that is not confirming that how a person dies in their character in this life, that's how they shall spend it in the eternal state, then I have confessed to you, I don't know what it's saying. But these texts and a multitude of other texts give clear indication in the scriptures that not all of God's creatures are going to enjoy a blessed and happy state of eternity. But that doesn't concern the God of love advocates because they are not found within the framework of the scriptures. They're like a little kid who can run in and out of the house and get his cookies whenever he wants them. They're not confined to the truth of Scripture. They can go to the Bible when they want, and it's of their interest to do so, and they can cast it aside. So when we confront them with these texts, they say those texts belong to an archaic understanding of God, a carryover from the dark ages. Our God is such a God of love that he could never allow any of his beings to perish. Therefore, all shall be ultimately saved. So the universal salvation of all of God's creatures then flows out of this concept that God is in essence love and love only. Now the second implication and inference which comes out of this belief is this. If God is love and love only, then this does away with the doctrine of election as taught in the Bible and by the Protestant reformers. <clears throat> Say it again, Pastor. If God is love and love only, then it does away with the doctrine of election as referred to in the Bible and taught by the Protestant reformers. Election unto salvation in a personal Savior, we are told, is a contradiction with the idea that God is love. If God is love, then all shall be saved. The concept that only a chosen amount of the race is going to be saved is totally incompatible with the view that God is love. Historically, you can go back in the history of the Baptists, in which the current day roots, in which that we have come out of, and what we have been exposed to, and you can find some 150 to 175 years ago that nearly every Baptist in the southern section and the eastern section of the United States held to a Calvinistic view of election. It's taught in the Bible. <clears throat> then something happened. The Unitarians began to migrate from the Northeast into the southern parts of the United States, and they brought with them their understanding of the universal salvation of all men based upon the idea that God is love. They began to come into Baptist churches and Presbyterian churches and congregational churches who held to the teaching on particular election, and they began to influence and water down this teaching. Now today, we still have individuals within our churches who hold that there is going to be an eternal punishment of the wicked. But I ask you, in your own understanding, how many years have you been exposed to the Bible doctrine of election in your Baptist background? Now, some of you have far more so than others. But if you go to the living 
Baptist who is alive today in the average Baptist church, this teaching on election is almost like some new thing that has landed from outer space. Well, I never heard that before, and I've been in church all my life. That's the reply which I get wherever I go and preach. Now, why is that? Because the more predominant that the Unitarian influence becomes with the God is love and love only teaching, the less will be the teaching of God's election of grace. And so I'm saying that our evangelical churches today are the product and the influence of old Unitarianism. They are not the product of the old Baptists which used to formulate our forefathers that were here in the United States of America who came over from England and then the ones who also came over on the Mayflower and all of those other groups of Christian bodies which held to these great groups. Now why does anyone hold to the doctrine of election? Incidentally, an Arminian holds to the doctrine of election. An Arminian doesn't believe that all people are going to be saved. An Arminian holds to election. A Calvinist holds to election. The Arminian believes that election is based upon the foreseen character and acts of the person who is saved. And the Calvinist believes that it's based upon the purpose of God to create that person's being and their very acts. So both believe in election. But at the same time, while they do so, they are denying universal salvation of all men. <clears throat> now why, though, do individuals come up with an understanding of election? Now listen to me carefully, because the Bible is full of it. If you shut yourself up into a room and determine that you're going to find out everything there is in that room, you'll soon discover some of the details that's in that room. And if you shut yourself up to the Bible and begin reading it and reading it and reading it, you will not escape. The Bible has something to say about election. It's all the way through it. Therefore, if your understanding of God is limited and hedged in by the Scriptures, then you're going to have to come up with some understanding of election. Now, when you read the ninth chapter of Romans, you find something about election there. Let's go there just for a moment. Romans chapter 9. And verse 10. Since all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, this is part of all Scripture, is it not? Then let's see what this Scripture says. Romans 9, verse 10. And not only this, but when Rebekah also has conceived by one, even by our father Isaac, for the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election, might stand, not of works, but of him that taught. It was said unto her, The elder shall serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I brought. Do I hear you? Hayden. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Now what would the God of love advocate say? God cannot be God and love one being and hate another being. That is impossible. God could not be satisfied in doing anything but loving. But the Bible student is confronted with this text of Scripture. And he is brought face to face. Here are two instances. And prior to their birth, one is elect and one is not. 
Therefore, he must face his understanding and stay within the confines of Scripture so that when the God is love advocate comes along and says, God loves all infants, the Bible student says, that is not so. The revelation is, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Is there something unrighteous about God in doing so? Not so, if we understand the nature of sin and the nature of inheritance of sin in one's birth, which I have already covered in past messages in this series and will do so at least in the final messages in this series. But the, the point is simply this. You cannot hold to the principle God is love so inclusive that he loves every member of the race so as to ensure their ultimate salvation in heaven. Beloved Esau is not in heaven. Jacob is. And not all members of Adam's race are going to enjoy a state of eternal joy. Therefore, you cannot hold to the doctrine of election and hold to the teaching that God is love at the same time. You've got to kick out one or the other. And that's why we have a Unitarian church over here, and that's why we have churches of other persuasions here, is that we have different concepts of the character of God. Now, thirdly, Universal salvation of all of God's creatures is implied by this view. Secondly, this view does away with the teaching of election as taught in the Bible and by the Reformers. But this view also overthrows the idea that God must have his wrath propitiated and satisfied by the bloody sacrifice of the innocent for the guilty. Not only must election go, but the atonement must go as well. If you listen carefully, you heard these writers state that. That that's an old-fashioned, old-fogey God who has to be satisfied by a bloody sacrifice. I ask you, do you cringe when you hear about a bloody sacrifice of a human being, an innocent human being dying in the place of guilty human beings? Or is that to you your very hope of eternal life? The God of love advocates, or God is love advocates, says this. You cannot hold that God is love and at the same time hold that he demands that an innocent human being die in the place of a guilty human being in order to satisfy the justice and the wrath of God. Now put two and two together then. You go and start listening to a minister, to a church, or reading a book which holds to the view that God is love. You read and listen, and you will not hear the atonement spoken of as an appeasement of the wrath of God. Instead, it will be a demonstration of the love of God revealed rather than the purchasing of God's love for sinners. Now what's the difference, Brother Jim? The moral influence view of the atonement is that the atonement is a revelation of the love of God for his creatures. The Calvinistic view of the atonement is that God's wrath must be propitiated or satisfied through an innocent party suffering in the place of a guilty party in order to appease and propitiate the wrath of God. What is your view of the atonement? The latter view holds that Christ's death, not all of me, purchased the love of God for sinners. The God is love view of the atonement is that the atonement reveals the already existing love of God for sinners. 
But it denies that there was anything in that atonement which had to please an angry God. It was merely God wanting to show to all of his creatures how much he needed them, how much he loved them, and how much he had to go to in order to ensure that ultimately all beings would be melted down and broken in their hearts when they fully come to realize how much God really loved them. But the God and love advocates deny vehemently that there was anything designed in the atoning death of Jesus Christ to appease the wrath of a holy God against sin. They deny that. And logically so, if their view of God, his love, is right. Now what says the scriptures? Hebrews 7.22, without the shedding of what? Blood, there is no remission of sin. That in the Bible, if you are bound by the Bible, then you must hold to a bloody religion. You must not be ashamed of the old rugged cross, the emblem of suffering and shame. For it was on that old cross that God was propitiated and reconciled unto sinners, that his wrath was turned to love to those in Christ Jesus. And God is now able to love me in his Son. And thus his Son purchased God's love for me on the cross of Calvary. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins. What he suffered for? Sins. The just for the unjust, the innocent for the guilty. That he might reveal to us how much God loved us. Is that right? What does your text say? That he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. Beloved, of that reconciliation, that appeasement, a sacrifice was offered that appeased and satisfied God, so that God can now move toward a sinner with an impulse to bless that sinner in Christ Jesus, his Son. Go to one other text, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things passed away, behold, all things are become new. And all things are of God who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ. Now what did God do through Jesus Christ? He reconciles unto him. Now the God is love you does not fit in there. For the God is love you holds that God did not have to be reconciled. There was nothing in God which would allow him to ever be angry with the sinner. But the scripture says otherwise. It says that Christ was God's means of reconciling us unto himself. The shedding of his blood, wherein the just innocent victim was died or died in the place of guilty sinners, so that I might be reconciled unto God. Is that your hope tonight? I love the story of the cross. The cross which involves a blood sacrifice that appeases God. Where that he said, the day that you shall sin, you shall surely die. And a sinner died on Calvary. That sinner was Jesus Christ. You say, wait a minute, Brother Jim, don't you call Jesus a sinner? My friend, he himself had no sin. But he was made sin 
for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in what? Him. That's how God can love me. Christ purchased the love of God for me on the cross of Calvary. So that he no longer is an offended God towards me in Christ. But he now has that impulse to bless me. And bless God, he has done that with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Everything which I need to be restored to his holy image, he has now that impulse in love to bless me in my representative, the Lord Jesus Christ. So we cannot then at the same time hold that God is love to all of his creatures, whether they be sinful or holy, and at the same time maintain a substitutionary atonement designed to appease the wrath of God. It goes out the window. That's why it's going out the window today. The more this Unitarian wave floods through the church, the less preaching of the cross as a substitute designed to appease God will be appearing on the scene. Now then, the fourth implication is that if you believe that God is love, and in essence only love, then this view extends the opportunity of salvation beyond this present life. This view holds that there shall be an afterlife probation for those who do not receive the love of God in this life. Now it is contended by this view that the old view of God's willingness to save to the uttermost is proclaimed by an infinite atonement in Christ. The old view declared God's love for the world and the universal desire for the salvation of his creatures. And yet, God looked down in this old view, supposedly, and he saw countless millions of heathen die who never heard about Jesus. And countless babies die and go down to the grave who never had a probationary chance. And yet this old view, supposedly, which we hold to, then held that as soon as death occurred, there was no other chance to be made right with God. But the God of love view says this, as long as God is love, the door of hope will not be closed in the face of a single human being who has been created by God. The door of love must swing open throughout all eternity. And if, by chance, it should ever become closed to one so hardened sinner that he does not desire God, the love of God being able to do nothing else will then annihilate that sin. So, the advocates of the God of love says, if a man isn't converted in this life, he can be converted in eternity to come, for God is always love, and he will always have the door open, for he never changes. Do you see the reasoning? Now the reasoning is logical if you grant the premise to be right. But if you deny the premise, then you see how the fallacy of it comes in. For example, if God truly desires the salvation of all men in this life, and death comes, does God cease then to desire their salvation? If so, he changes. Is God going to have to live throughout all eternity unsatisfied? Or is his son, my brothers and sisters, going to be able to see the travail upon the Calvary's cross and be satisfied. Will the Son of God be satisfied in eternity? 
with what the ultimate outcome is. I say he will. For Isaiah says he will. He shall see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. Everything which God has purposed in the scheme of redemption, he will be satisfied with at the final day of judgment. He will not spend eternity as a disappointed, unhappy God with a frustrated son at his side. He shall have a people, and those people shall be saved. Every one of his sheep shall come into the fold, and his death shall not be in vain. Now, is this the teaching of the Scripture, or is there going to be a second chance after death? Hebrews 9.27 states, It is appointed unto men, what's the rest of it? Once to die. And after this, what's the rest? The judgment. The judgment. Once to die, then judgment. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2. Now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Now, beloved, all through the scriptures, it emphasizes that if a man desires to spend eternity in a happy state, he's going to have to settle it in this present state. But if you hold to the concept that God is love, that he can never change, therefore if he has purposed the salvation of all men in this life, then he must continue to give them an opportunity throughout all eternity. The God has loved you cannot be reconciled with the teaching that it is in this life that a person must get things prepared for the life to come. Now those are four implications. Universal salvation for everybody, everyone. Does away with the Bible doctrine of election. Does away with the Bible doctrine of an atonement. And extends the opportunity of salvation beyond this present life. Let's summarize then this view and then continue to examine the fallacies of it in next week's messages. Message. But I want to summarize as clear as we can what has been said tonight. This view then holds that infants do not stand in need of Christ's atonement or of any operation of grace. Infants don't need the death of Christ because God is love and didn't need to be satisfied. They infants do not need any operation of the Holy Spirit because God is love. The cause of the infant's salvation is based upon the yearnings of God's heart to see his creatures happy and blessed, wherein his love is satisfied and his own happiness then maintained. God must save every being of his creation or else he can't remain happy. Thus, since an infant is one of his creatures, all infants then, dying in infancy, of course, are automatically saved because of the God which is love. Now let's take three infants this evening, and if we could, we could have them talk to us and communicate to us in some way. Let us let them give us their testimonies as they appear before heaven and ask for infants saved. The first infant has been saved by the sinless spirit. Whereupon, in entering the gates of heaven, God asked this infant, What right, my creature, do you have to enter into my heaven? And the creature replies, My creator, I have the right to be here because I was born with a sinless nature and I died before I ever committed an act of sin. Therefore, I am not worthy to be condemned. The second instance is asked the same question, my creature, what right do you have to enter heaven? And this infant was saved by the incapable view. And this infant says, I was born, but I died before my probationary state began. Therefore, I was incapable of meeting any of the conditions which would send me to hell. I'm not accountable. I have a right to heaven. 
And then the third infant will be the infant which is supposedly saved by the love of God, dear. Wherein God asks my creature, what right do you have to enter my heaven? And the infant says, my creator, I must be in heaven in order for you to remain happy and satisfied. And not one of those infants needed the blood of Jesus Christ, and not a one of those infants needed the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Yet the scriptures say, except a man be born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, these three views give us an adequate answer for the destiny of a dead child. I think not. Only the blood of Jesus Christ as applied to an individual's life by the ministry of the Holy Spirit can prepare a person to enter through the presence of a holy God desiring to live with him throughout eternity. Let's close in prayer.